Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christchurch Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. Got it. Okay. Michael, are you here? I see you've got everything uh, there. I'm, I'm here. Yes. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. We're going to try to, we're going to try to, to somehow keep up. Thank you so much uh, for all your, your wonderful, beautiful, uh, prayerful presence among us, which has been a blessing. And we're so excited to have you. And again, I also want to thank John Whitcomb for being here and so what we'll do is we'll have you speak and then we'll offer, John could offer maybe a, a starting a reflection. We'll be watching the, the chat. Chris, um, Father Chris will be monitoring the chat as well for some questions. And then we hope we'll find some time that we can have some better conversation when we get into this a bit. So without further ado, uh, and we promise we'll finish at about 1120 and we'll do the litany. So without further ado, Michael, please. Thank you. We'll open with a, a prayer. And Chris, if you'll, if you just say everything in bold face, and also if our whole community to stay muted, um, you can say that as well, but just so that we don't have any glitches with our technology. Uh, if Chris, you'll just say what's in bold face would be great. So let us pray. For the hungry and the overfed. May we have enough. For the mourners and the mockers. May we laugh together. For the victims and the oppressors. May we share power wisely. For the peacemakers and the warmongers. May clear truth and stern love lead us to harmony for the silenced and the propagandists. May we speak our own words in truth. For the unemployed and the overworked. May our impress on the earth be kindly and creative. For the troubled and the sleek. May we live together as wounded healers for the homeless and the closed hearted. May our homes be simple, warm and welcoming. For the vibrant and the dying. May we all die to live. And so gracious God, we offer all these prayers to you and be with us as we seek your reign on earth through Christ, amen. Amen. Uh, first, I just want to uh, thank Bill for his wonderful sermon today. Um, I'm able to draft off of his sermon very well, especially his insight about the power to see without distortion. We can see more clearly as we see Christ on the cross. So thank you for that, Bill. And we'll get into that as we get into our discussions here. Here's the map or the game plan for us. Um, I want to look at two 
different ways of understanding a theological view of reconciliation. Um, and I think it's important to start with God. So I want us to, to see how I am seeing res restoration that is also reconciliation, and namely to understand that God, who is supernatural, created what is natural. And through that sort of combination, God's creation is always about creation, not destruction. So I want to get into that. And then I want to get into um, something that many people do not understand or may not be aware of, the process of reconciliation. Oftentimes we lump everything into this concept of forgiveness, but forgiveness itself is part of a process. And uh, our churches taught us this through what's called the rite of reconciliation. So I wanna, I wanna get into that too. And then next week, I wanna to get into what I'm trying to say is natural. Um, and I want to investigate God's natural aim of restoration through what I think is a miracle. And oftentimes, um, if we have eyes to see, we can actually see the miracle. But because this world keeps us so busy and distracted, um, we often see the world only through distortions and we miss the miracle. And so I want to look at the miracle of South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Commission next week. So I want us to get into God created what is natural, aimed for creation, not destruction. And in shorthand, I'd go so far as to say God is the opposite of violence. Um, it really hit me one time when I was just thinking about, you know, it's so hard to know God. Um, it's so hard to touch God. It's, it's just so hard to know the tactile presence of God. And as I was reading some theologians, um, it really hit me that, you know, if you really want to know God's presence, Oftentimes we have to know what is not God's presence. Um, and Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, taught us this. If you want to define something, you also have to, de to define what it is not. And to me, what is not God is violence. And I also learned, um, as I was thinking about that, if we want to know what is of God, it's those things in our life, those experiences in our life in which we find ourselves being advocated for, supported. Um, um, those things in our life that bring us peace. And to me, that's an aspect of God's presence. Not, not simply um, any kind of superficial understanding of peace, but those moments in which we find peace, we are in the presence more in a tactile way of God. So I want to get into that as we get into our discussions. But it's always good to make contact with you so you get to know me more and where all this stuff is coming from. So I want to tell a story that represents how I understand God. 
and how God is the opposite of violence. When I was trying to make a decision about becoming an Episcopalian, I was visiting my sister in Alkenbury, England. Um, she was a JAG officer and, um, in the Air Force, and she was stationed in England in Alkenbury. And I was going to go spend two weeks with her. And as I got to Alkenbury, and as siblings are wont to do, we can only put up with each other for so long. So I got a, on a, Brit, I got a British rail pass and got on a train. Um, and I went to Cardiff, Wales. It was Sunday morning. And I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina. And my mom raised me to go to church every day. So this was just another Sunday for me to find a church to go to in Cardiff, Wales. So I left my bed and breakfast, hit those cobblestone streets in Cardiff. And I was trying to find a church that I would want to worship in. And I saw another black guy walking down the same cobblestones. And I became like a detective because it seemed like he was going to church too. He was carrying a guitar. It seemed like he had a hymnal and a Bible. And to me, I became like a, a CIA agent, the detective doing surveillance work, following him down these cobblestones, hoping he would lead me off and to this church on a side street full of people who look like me and who worship the same way, had the same kind of church music that I wanted. And as I was doing my surveillance work, a car drove up next to him. He got in and they drove away. My angel of God abandoned me. And so it was that bewitching hour, Sunday morning, around this time, the church bells were tolling and I was still trying to find the church that I wanted to go and worship in. And I ended up going into the loudest bells tolling for me. It was an Anglican church, huge, could probably seat over 1200 people. It had a smattering of people, mostly probably around 100. And it was mostly elderly women. And as I went in, I sat on the pew and it felt like stone and it felt cold. Um, naturally, I was the only black person in the church. And as I sat there and I looked around, most people kept their space and this was pre-COVID and yet they were still keeping their space and their distance from each other. And as I looked around, my favorite TV show came to mind called Star Trek, The Next Generation. And on Star Trek, Star Trek, there's a villain called the Borg. And they're so powerful as a villain that they don't even care if you come in their presence because they will annihilate you just as long as you don't present yourself as a threat. Well, as I sat in that Anglican church, it seemed to me like I was surrounded by Borg, mostly elderly women. As long as I didn't sit too close to their purse, everything was fine. And maybe it was just my own insecurity, but I noticed that when I was about to receive the chalice, there was a readjustment in the line of those who were behind me. But it seemed as though I was surrounded by those who didn't really care as long as I didn't get too close 
to them. And then to make matters worse, the vicar mounted these celestial stairs up a staircase to the pulpit and he announced the title of his sermon, The Efficacy of Used Cars. There was no mention of Jesus. There was no understanding of the gospel in the sermon. And he even tried to sell his own used car. And as I sat there in that um, sort of T.S. Eliot wasteland, I made a decision in terms of where my loyalties would be for the church that I would dedicate my life to, the denomination. And it was there and then that I made a decision to become an Anglican. And the reason was because in that desert, in that wasteland, I heard from God, similar to Bill's sermon, that it was a clarity there that I never had before. And it was as if God was saying to me, Michael, look around you. Look at what happens in the natural selection of being the church in which birds of a feather flock together and which we worship based on ethnicity and socioeconomic background. It was as if God was saying to me, Michael, left to your own devices, you would wanna follow someone into a church that looked like you, that you would only wanna be in a church with your kind of tastes and aesthetics. You would only wanna be with your kind. And it was as if God was saying to me, and here is the punchline, uh, Michael, I'm not calling you to a natural church. I'm not calling you into a church made in your image, Michael. It's as if God was saying to me, I'm calling you into a supernatural church, a church that reflects God's ways, God's presence. And so this is important for us to begin because if we're going to understand reconciliation, we have to understand the state of being that we are all in. Left to our own devices is the same as living in a distorted, distorted perception, not just of the world, but a distorted perception of God. And our ultimate source for reconciliation, because as Christians, we believe the greatest reconciliation is with God. And if we're not careful, we create our own gods and, and project that onto the living God. And that becomes a distortion and we think we are in peace, we're living in peace, when in fact, we're only exacerbating a world of dysfunction. And to me, what's powerful is the season that we're in, because Lent is simply the 40 days that Jesus was in the wilderness. And, and note here the scripture here on the PowerPoint, Jesus was led by the Spirit. Jesus was led 
by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And if you notice what happens in this temptation of Jesus, it's really about distortion. You know, the, the devil tells Jesus to command stones to become bread. And, you know, Jesus is trying to fast and the devil is trying to distort the whole reason Jesus is there. And so Jesus says, we do not live by bread alone. And then the devil tells Jesus to commit attempt suicide by jumping off this precipice. And the distortion is that the devil says, you can do anything, your angels will, will catch you. And then Jesus says to the devil again to stop the distortion that this is not about testing. This is not about trying to show another reality. And then the devil tells Jesus, hey, all these kingdoms of the world I will give you and all of its splendor, just worship me. And then this was the straw that breaks the camel's back because this shows Jesus's anger. And Jesus says to Satan, get away from me. And also in this moment, the devil leaves. The 40 days, our Lenten season is about removing the distortion we see more clearly in the desert and we hear more clearly in the desert. When we remove those things which seem natural to us and we start to imagine and to see that which is supernatural. This season of Lent to me is really important in terms of understanding reconciliation because if we're not careful, we will accept our reality as the way it's supposed to be instead of how violence turns our world into a distorted reality. And I wanna play this clip here because in many ways it's, you know, it brought tears to my eyes when I saw this, it was a BBC clip, but it shows you the violent natural world that we are living in, that we caused, and not the creation that God intentionally set in motion. An entire generation of children in war-torn Yemen is at risk of missing out on an education. After six years of civil war, one in five schools is unusable. Help is hard to come by. At a donor conference today, the UN Secretary General described the amount of aid pledged, $1.7 billion, as disappointing. That might be diplomatic. But against the odds, the children of one town are finding ways to continue their education. Our international correspondent Orla Guerin, producer Claire Reed, and cameraman Gokte Koraltan have sent us this report from outside the city of Taiz. It's a hard road for little feet. But in the early morning on the outskirts of Taiz, they flock here across the rubble. This is their prize equipment stored nearby under lock and key. Time for morning assembly. <laughs> Leading the drill, the top student, Ahmed Raghib. 
The Alwasta Milad Primary School was the pride of the district until 2016, when it was occupied by Houthi rebels and became a battleground. It has been reclaimed, such as it is, but some days pupils sit and wait for teachers. The government hasn't paid many of them in years. So in this class, there's a substitute. Ahmed fills in. He's nine years old and has been blind from birth. This is his dream job for the future. In the meantime, he's got a wish list. Ahmed, what's that noise? Frontline or not, classes continue here. Down below, it's mathematics. Over here, it's Arabic language. Teachers tell us the war has already taught these children to be resilient. They say the pupils rarely miss a day. Now, more than ever, they're hungry for education. School's out, and this is the journey home for Ahmed and his sister Fatima, who's also blind. A friend leads the way. Ahmed calls him his car. <laughs> A stumble doesn't stop Ahmed. He's a study in determination. Orla Giran, BBC News, Tyres. For me, this is a powerful narrative that shows the cause and effects of a violent world. So much so that those who are in an educational society only can learn from a blind nine-year-old because the resources have been taken and because the world in Yemen is so um, deeply um, in crisis that these kinds of distortions are a, a window into what's going around the world. It's important, I, I think, for us to see that Jesus is trying to get us to, how, to see ourselves, how we live in such distortions. And we saw, I think, last week in the gospel here of Mark chapter 8, um, of how Peter and Jesus were in a tussle in many ways of rebuking each other. But this was similar to what I read to you from Matthew chapter 4 
in terms of Jesus telling the devil to get away. And it's because Peter, as we know, was prone to violence. And many biblical scholars say Peter himself was tempted to be in those revolutions as a zealot to bring down the Roman Empire, even with violence. I'm not sure that's necessarily what's going on in this passage of scripture, but when Jesus tells Peter, in effect, to get behind me, I am suggesting that Jesus is rejecting the violence, the methodology that Peter had in mind of how the world should be saved. But hopefully we are seeing in this conversation that I'm having with you that without our even knowing what we accept as reality is not the true reality that God intends for us, that God aims for us, but it's a distorted reality and not what God intends. Here you'll see a, an image. Um, I'm here with Archbishop Tutu, and we are visiting a church in Cape Town in 1993, and it was bombed in the middle of the church service, and it was a predominantly white congregation, and many people were killed. And as we were looking at this, that's me there with the blue jacket, and that's Archbishop Tutu there in front of me. And you see the blood on the floor and on the ground. For me, who um, I was born in 1963, and I never really had the existential moments of participating in the civil rights movement here in the US. But when I had the opportunity to live with Archbishop Tutu, I had the the real um, existential crises that I imagine my ancestors were going through for those moments in which affliction occurred. And what I mean by affliction is something that is deeper than violence. And my favorite Christian mystic, Simone Weil, helps me to explain Simone Weil says there's two kinds of suffering. There's the suffering in which you have a broken arm or you, you have a cold and you know that they can be alleviated. But then there's this kind of suffering that does not go away. There's a suffering such as rape, such as slavery, and it's the kind of suffering that cannot be alleviated. It stays with you. And for me here in this church, I sensed affliction. The, the very sanctuary, which means this should be a safe, sacred space, is now prone to violence even that which should be a healing environment is now bombed and which people can no longer feel God's presence. So violence not only distorts the world, violence causes affliction, which makes us doubt the presence of God 
being with us. Here, I want us to move toward the gospel, which means the good news, that our assumptions about God are extremely important. Because first, to understand God as Trinity is to show how God is always about relationality. God's presence is always about the inclusion of the other person, the reciprocity of the other person. And through the incarnation, what we understand about God is something that is miraculous, that should help us move beyond distortion, should help us, as Bill was teaching us, to have the wisdom to see more clearly how God is with us in this world. Namely, God can suffer. God can be afflicted. God can live in a world of distortion. In other words, our Christian assumptions are that God comes alongside us in this world to move us back in place, to set the bone so that we can be restored, so that what we consider as natural can become supernatural. And so seeing God's supernature and our natural blindness is our Christian assumption. And as I started out saying about um, violence um, and sort of proving the presence of God as being the opposite of it, our understanding of the Holy Spirit is so important for us. And in our mainline churches as Episcopalians, oftentimes we do not talk about the Holy Spirit enough, but the Holy Spirit is that advocate for us in this world. And anytime we find ourselves in need of restoration or we find ourselves broken or as Bill was sharing about that wonderful um, nonprofit that helps those who are at the very bottom. The Holy Spirit is the same. The Holy Spirit is always about advocating for our needs, moving us out of distortion and putting us back into this, this process of clarity. And the Holy Spirit is so important because I think we need to understand how God is with us today. Um, and as you know, in scripture, how can you love God who you have not seen while you hate your brother and sister that you do see? The Holy Spirit is so important for us because the Holy Spirit is actually helping us to see God. So my first assumption is that God's very nature is about reconciliation. God's very nature of justice is the same as restoring that which is broken, setting the bone, if you will, bringing our body back into a place of health. And the process of that for us naturally, that is for us as human beings to practice the presence of God is called the right of reconciliation. When, we're trying, when we try to practice God's presence, another word for that is prayer, 
But when we practice God's presence in terms of justice and reconciliation, it's not simply about words like I forgive you. Um, it's not simply about understanding what's right and wrong. Right of, a right of reconciliation is about trying to show us a whole nother worldview, another way of seeing the world, another way of seeing clearly. And it starts with contrition. And I'm going to go through each of these in turn. But contrition is basically the awareness of guilt. And if we do not have an awareness of guilt, we are living into that distortion. And then from contrition, confession. Most of us know confession, the, the ability to articulate clearly in public who we are. And then forgiveness, repentance, reunion. But oftentimes, especially for us who are living in the Western world, it's difficult to take this order that you have on the screen, contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance, reunion, because most of us want to put the fourth bullet point, repentance, before forgiveness, because we want to put the condition on forgiveness that there must be repentance. But in the right of reconciliation, it's a different way of seeing beyond the distortions, beyond our conditions. The right of reconciliation is modeled after what's called Christian mysticism. The right of reconciliation is modeled after the threefold way to God, purgation, illumination, and union. You can actually see in those five different concepts purgation, the beginning is purgative, and then illumination comes sort of in the middle, and then naturally union. So the right of reconciliation is modeled after Christian mysticism, purgation, illumination, and union. And for us in our Western world to place different demands on what the forgiveness looks like, to me is part of the distortion, part of our need for control of who can be forgiven. So let's go through each of these in turn, and then I'll stop and open things up for discussion. Contrition is simply deep and genuine awareness of guilt, and hopefully you'll laugh at that uh, far side cartoon if we pull this off, we'll eat like kings. Naturally, spiders are not contrite for eating children. That's their nature. That's the survival mode that they're in. But God created human beings in God's image. God, through Christ, is making us mutual with the supernatural way and being of God. So we are contrite about children being eaten. We are contrite beyond those others who live simply by instinct. So contrition is the beginning of this process of reconciliation, the awareness that we are more than animals. This sort of sets in motion the big bang of the right of reconciliation. Contri contrition is difficult because in much of our Christian theology, as I was trying to say about the arrangement of repentance and forgiveness, we 
we argue over what we should be contrite about. Um, as I showed you the video clip of Ahmed, I think that's about contrition, the brokenness of a world, the, the tragedy of a world in which there are no teachers and only a blind nine-year-old can teach. That's inviting us into this process of reconciliation with another religion, Islam, with another region of the world, with seeing that we are all in this together as human beings. So in many ways, contrition has to be taught. And also our concepts of heaven, for example, we have to learn about contrition. Heaven and hell is a problem. Because I remember I was I was I had the, the glorious opportunity to study with um, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan, Rowan Williams. And I remember sitting in one of uh, Rowan's classes and he taught us about a Russian Orthodox theologian that had insomnia, kind of like Bill and Bill's sermon. He couldn't really sleep all night. But unlike Bill, this Russian Orthodox theologian was wrestling about hell, the concept of hell. This Russian Orthodox theologian said, how could he be in heaven, completely happy, conscious of someone weeping and gnashing their teeth forever? How could he still be completely happy, aware, conscious, of others suffering? How could that still be happiness? How could that still be heaven? Contrition is difficult and we have to train in this concept of awareness of guilt. And I remember raising my hand in the class with Rowan and I said, you know, some people's concept of heaven is based upon the pleasure of seeing our enemies suffering, the pleasure of revenge, the, the pleasure of putting people in their place, our enemies in their place. And I think that's part of the distortion. That's part of the, the training that we need in prayer and the practice of God's presence. Contrition is a process too, and it needs to be trained and discipled by Christ. So we begin with contrition. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's a, it, very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down, 
I know what it's like down here and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. From contrition, we move to confession and the right of reconciliation. And confession is pretty simple. It's the articulation of truth. And the ultimate truth is, I am not God. Confession is, is the clarity of seeing who we are in relationship to God. So not only are we not perfect, but we are prone to mistakes. Um, we are always in need of articulating not simply that which is sinful, but we are always prone and in need of articulating who we are. So oftentimes we understand confession in ways of negativity, but confession is the first awareness of guilt, but contrition is the awareness of guilt, which moves into moving out of that internal space of that awareness and articulating it into our communities, those that we are, who we are connected to. And basically to have the worldview that we are not perfect, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, that left to my own devices, I'm gonna mess things up. That public way of articulating those things is a natural outgrowth of contrition. So you move from what's internal, that which is con what makes us contrite, into the public articulation of that, which is confession. And then I say, 
we move into forgiveness, we don't put any kind of condition on forgiveness like repentance. We move into forgiveness because when we are aware of guilt, when we articulate it to each other, then we basically are in the presence of God already, and God is the one who is forgiveness. When we are aware of our guilt, when we offer ourselves to each other publicly with our contriteness, our contrition, we then are illuminated. We are present to God who naturally is forgiveness. And we understand this through especially what Bill was saying by looking at the cross and the hole in the cross, that distorted image of the cross that Bill held up. And then there was that, that, um, that, that hole there that gave us the clarity of where to go. That's forgiveness. And oftentimes we, in our hubris and our pride, think that the hardest thing is to forgive but the hardest thing is to know that you are forgiven. Because if you know you are forgiven, you are assuming God. You are assuming God's presence. If you know that you are forgiven, it's easier to go around and articulate forgiveness that, that which we understand as forgiveness. But oftentimes, the easiness of that is because we are trying to control what needs to be forgiven. And we're trying to keep controls and restraints on that. So contrition, confession, forgiveness, repentance. And to me, repentance is not just about repetition. Repentance is about constant movement toward God. And another way of seeing repentance is maturity. How we move from childlike and oftentimes distorted images of God's presence to more mature images and experiences of God. We see that maturity taking place from Peter and Jesus rebuking each other to Peter, as, as the narratives say, dying upside down, Peter being crucified upside down, according to um, some accounts of church history. That kind of narrative of moving from rebuking Jesus, the use of violence, to being crucified upside down is really the example of what I'm trying to, to share in terms of the movement, the maturity of how we practice reconciliation. And then lastly, a step that's often left out of our understanding of forgiveness and reconciliation, or we just assume this is the only thing there is um, in forgiveness in terms of an enemy um, becoming friends with an enemy or, or, or reunion is it's difficult because in Christian mysticism, um, the Desert Fathers and Mothers teach us that we should not force this on anyone. We should not think that the kinds of reunion that we expect should naturally happen. That we catch glimpses of this reunion, but there should be no forced 
intimacy, no forced union with anyone, that that naturally has to occur and that God will show us glimpses of such reunion. I end with this, this is an image of uh, Tibetan monks because it looks like they're fighting. But if you interpret it in a way that's not distorted, in other words, if you're there and you understand what's clearly happening, they're celebrating, they are playing, they are completely happy, they are tactile, they are present to one another, they are in relationality. And so I end with where I began in terms of if we're not trained as the right of reconciliation is trying to do with us to understand the supernatural ways of God, we often take for granted what is distorted and afflicted and see that as what we understand as the only way the world can be. So I'm stopping here to allow um, some time for reflection let me stop sharing my screen here. Great, thank you so much, Michael. We're gonna, there is a question that came up while you were doing your um, uh, your presentation, and I think it's good for some clarification and some elaboration before we turn to John. And it's, can you speak more about contrition? Is it done only by the individual? Can we bring about contrition in one another? Is that the role of empathy? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a good question. Um, as we as we understand contrition, um, the individual and the community are inextricably bound together. To to understand ourselves, we we have to be in community. So you can't know that you're beautiful, that you're wise, that you have a good sense of humor, unless your individuality is connected to others. Um, you can't know you're unique unless there is a communal reference point to see you as unique. So I think contrition is the same way that we we have to to test our our ways of awareness of guilt as individuals with each other. Um, and I think that's that's one of the reasons um, I I brought up that example of Ron Williams' class that. We need to test contrition, not just on what we see as guilt, but how that is really affecting the whole community and ourselves. Mm, that's beautiful. And then, you know, to to build on that just a bit, um, you know, the empathy, it seems, actually creates the space, it seems, to get out of the reactivity that we often find ourselves in, right? Because it, contrition itself is a, is a vulnerable space to be in. And it seems that one of the things that empathy does is it creates the conditions under which you have the safety to be vulnerable. And if you don't have exactly. that, then you can't ever unclench your fist. Your fist. Yeah, I mean that that danger. There's this is very dangerous um, to be contrite um, because the vulnerability is real. Um, the consequences are real. The, and especially moving from being contrite to uh, articulating that in public. Mm. 
John, let's turn to you. Oh, um, the, uh, yeah, that's, it's, yes. Uh, and Eric has a wonderful comment that you're the first person he has ever heard who has acknowledged that knowing I am forgiven by God is hard, even at times impossible. This is oddly comfort comforting, maybe just comforting too. Um, the let's turn to John and have um, some some response. Yeah, thank you, thank you so much, Michael. Really enjoyed that, of course. I mean, depth of thinking and reflection, and and the way you all, you kind of led us through those things. So I just thought I'd pull out. I think maybe four or five maybe things just really briefly that sprang to me. Um, I think that where you started about the miracle of seeing the world as God wants us to see it and trying to, I didn't hear the, uh, clearly I need to go into the Crumbook site to see what Bill said in his sermon this morning, uh, which has obviously landed so well. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hear that. But um, I think um, the role of imagination um, in enabling us to see the world as God uh, wants us to see it. I, I'm more and more convinced, you heard me say this probably last week, maybe the, and the week before, that the, this, the huge significance of our imagination in the work of reconciliation, because I think that without that spark of imagination, which in a way is a miracle in itself, um, we can't begin to move forward into a world that we can't imagine. We have to be able to somehow see it. So uh, I really enjoyed that. And I love that, 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 that idea of that actually being a miracle to help us escape from the distortion. Um, uh, and, um, and that was about a kind of moving from, as it were, creation damage towards a new creation. And simply, I was waiting for you to pop 2 Corinthians 5, 17 in there, and, uh, which, you, which you, I'm sure, was in the back of your mind. But I thought I just wanted to reference that thing about here we have a new creation, because that's so obviously conformed with what you were talking about. Um, and, then, um, and then beginning to, then the stuff that you talked about, the Holy Spirit. Um, so I think at various points in my mind, my life, I've struggled a little bit with trying to work out whether it's more significant to me that I was a charismatic or a kind of neo-Pentecostal, um, sort of lukewarm Pentecostal, some people call the charismatics, but never mind, um, uh, or, or an Anglican. And I think that waking up our sense to the Holy Spirit is, is incredibly important. And the role of the Holy Spirit in relationship and, uh, and releasing the possibility of relationship, both uh, with with God and with each other is absolutely fundamental. I believe that that is what the Holy Spirit does. And then um, that then linked for me into the fourth thing, which was uh, that lovely little cartoon from Brené um, Brown, which I've seen before, I think. Um, uh, but what was what makes something better is connection. And of course, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. So I think it's kind of um, you know, we need to wake up our charismatic or Pentecostal inner child and let's just get going uh, and, and, let, and let the spirit loose in our lives. Um, and then I was simply going to end actually with that thing that Bill just pulled out from Eric's comment. I love that, that sentence about to know that you are forgiven is to know God. I don't think I've ever heard that before. And I really, really, really enjoyed it. Um, it's, there's such profound truth in that. Um, which links to your thing about, you know, uh, as it were, you know, contrition, confession, beginning with knowing that I'm not God. It is only God who can forgive. And then whatever forgiveness we express is a participation in the forgiveness of God. So for us to know ourselves um, 
to know ourselves forgiven is to know God, I think, and to link uh, into the challenge of that, I think it was just a wonderful place to finish. So thank you. Brilliant. We have a question from Shirley, which is uh, wanting you to explore this idea that God is not violence. Uh, people said that God did not cause 9-11 or the pandemic, but he did not stop it. What is your response to this? Uh, thank you. Thanks for <laughs> such a, uh, a question that is, is so um, much still with us, actually. Um, yeah, I think when you think about how God interacts with um, creation um, and how God solves problems, um, going back to Bill's sermon, you know, God is solving the problem by becoming the victim. And in no, no way do I suggest that we become victims. Only God can do that and overcome that identity of being a victim. But God saves us in ways that we do not, um, the methodologies that we do not naturally use. Um, and only God can do those, those methodologies, not, not us. So God didn't stop 9-11 in the same sense that I am saying to you, that God doesn't behave like a Steven Spielberg movie of uh, throwing special effects um, that really have casualties and casualties of war. Um, God's agency looks more like Jesus on the cross um, uh, looks more like um, playing with children. Um, God's way of saving us looks more like weeping as Jesus looked at scenes similar to Ahmed of a blind kid teaching a class. So God doesn't stop 9-11 because God is revealed to us through Jesus. Um, and Jesus' way of saving is not simply to fix individual acts, but to, to heal the whole system. It's a lovely response. I really appreciate that because um, so often when people are confronted by theodicy, they retreat into the attributes of God. You know, is God infinitely good or infinitely powerful? And, there, and there's always this kind of calculus that goes through that completely ignores um, the revelation of Christ on the cross. And so I actually think that that's a beautiful response, Michael, because I, I think that that's profoundly right. Be, it, it, and it goes to the, I, I, I don't know why I'm reading so much Augustine these days. You think of me as a, a scholar. I just happen to be reading him because he's, he's good for Lent, right? He's the most guilty conscience in the <laughs> yeah, he is. Of, of, of Christianity. But, you know, one of the things he says in the Enchiridion when he gets confronted with this question of evil is that God chose to transform evil. And he just, he placed it within the context of God's um, decision uh, and the transformation that God wrought was through Christ. And, and that's his, that was his fundamental response, um, even though he'll talk about evil in different ways. But I, I think it is, it's, it's, it's hard for us because when you are at threat, when you experience um, 
evil in any form, when you lose a child, uh, when you, when you um, experience disease, uh, when someone is struck by COVID and taken away, um, it, it's sometimes hard to know. Um, I mean, it's, the, 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 the cross is not always the greatest comfort. And it's something that's very hard for us as Christians to say uh, in that pastoral moment. And, and what, I, what I think I hear you saying is that in those moments, actually, um, what we need to do is enliven our understanding of the cross as God's empathy, as God's entering into some vulnerable space so that there's a connection that is healing. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, I mean, I think the the way that God saves us is through empathy, um, um, removing the distortion that the person we see as an enemy and seeing that person as a sister and a brother. Mm. Um, and it's not a, a Steven Spielberg special effect of throwing that enemy against a wall um, or beating that in, indiv individual up or participating in a contagious form of violence, but it's trying to open up the distortion for clarity um, by trying to show us that our enemies are our sisters and brothers, our enemies are ourselves, and to love our enemies as we love ourselves. Um, th does that make any sense in terms of yeah. this methodology that I think Jesus is trying to teach us? And it's not this, it's not the Hollywood uh, Denzel Washington shooting people up kind of thing. It's yeah. Although I thoroughly enjoyed that movie and felt guilty. Me too. I'm a big uh, Denzel oh Washington fan too. Like so that. it was amazing. Um, yeah. Anytime. Um, the Equalizer is just unbelievable. But we are naturally attracted to violence. We're entertained by it. We're, we are entertained by violence. Yeah. And I think, but I think what you're also rejecting to move into classical thought is the Deus Ex Machina. Right, God is not going to come in and fix it in the normal way if we believe that Jesus is the revelation of God. Um, right. If we move, I want to keep going into some of these amazing questions. We got a bunch, um, and um, uh, I, Alyssa asks uh, or mentions that she's been reading a book called *The Great Divorce* by C.S. Lewis. Um, and where Lewis speaks about contrition and whether or not you can be happy with people who are living in sin. Um, and they are differentiated. Lewis makes the difference, the distinction between the action of pity versus the passion of pity. The passion of pity does no good and leads people to feel guilt and do bad things. The action of pity is positive and brings healing and joy without succumbing to misery and sin. I have to say, I have been, um, I have, it's been a minute since I've read The Great Divorce. I can't, I can't speak with uh, uh, a lot of clarity about that distinction of pity, can, but, but maybe Michael, you know it and can speak well, to I, it. I think I'm similar to you, Bill, on that, but I, I think um, having read C.S. Lewis, um, he's, he's more on that front of, understanding just war and criteria and proportionality. And so his distinctions between passion and pity 
um, fit the, those kinds of criteria of proportionality. Um, so I think uh, there is a distinction from what I'm saying and then what C.S. Lewis is saying that um, if we understand how God interacts with creation through the revelation of Christ, um, we cannot put our own human criteria um, based on these realities because we live in distortion. And C.S. Lewis is really good with articulating that very point, a fish doesn't know it's wet. But I think in terms of violence, he somehow, uh, oftentimes C.S. Lewis capitulates to the use of violence. And I just don't see how you can, you can do that responsibly uh, living in a distorted world and having a distorted perspective. That's a lovely response. Um, going to Rachel Dougal, Dr. Dougal asks, um, uh, and I'm just going to, uh, I think there may be a typo or two here, Rachel. Was it our temptation to see how we will deal with those in, in these situations um, and to seek God or to try to control ourselves? You know what, Rachel, I'm going to just give you a chance. I don't quite, I want to give you a chance to just, I'm going to ask, I'm asking you to unmute. If you hit the unmute button, you can ask the question your, uh, verbally because I, I, I can't quite understand it. I was asking whether the 9-11 and the pandemic, are we trying to, they may be the contradictions. God gave distorted things, how we deal with that situation. Are we dealing with asking God to help us to deal with that? Or are we going to take the situation under our control and do it? Yeah, good question. Um, the way the way I see it, uh, Rachel, is that God doesn't want us to separate those two. Um, God wants us to participate in what God is already doing. And I think God naturally is trying to get us to participate in creation and not destruction. Um, and I'm saying naturally because that's what we do, because we're natural. God is beyond what's natural. So the natural is participating in the supernatural. So we should be trying to do the best we can with the gifts of the intellect, with the gifts of community, with the gifts of compassion, empathy, to solve those issues, because I think those are given by God. But we don't necessarily, in our freedom, have to do that we don't have to do those we don't have to exercise those gifts just like i was trying to say in my story in cardiff um we could just try to live in our own little echo chambers and um we can just try to you know benefit ourselves but i think god is calling us not to to live in an echo chamber um god is calling us to live in a, in the difficulties of loving our neighbor as ourselves um the difficulties of being rational and what i mean by that is if we don't care for everyone who is caught up in COVID 19 inevitably that's going to come back and we we can be infected because we're not really trying to to heal the whole pandemic i mean that's rational right i mean i think god has given us rationality um yeah so but that's kind of my response and then um, Manisha was picking up on Shirley's deep question and asking if it was ultimately a um, part of uh, how, how 
she imagines reconciliation. And so I, uh, I want to actually give, I'm going to uh, have Shirley unmute so that she can actually respond to Manisha's question, and then we'll turn it to you all to see what you think. What is her question? So the question is, is, is your deep question a result of your imagination of reconciliation that God can't find heaven as long as there is pain in this world? No, I don't think, no. <laughs> no, wow. Um, I guess, I don't know. I don't know. I'll just be honest, I don't know. No, and I appreciate it. And I just wanna make sure, just because she asked the question of you, I wanna make sure you got a chance to respond to it. <laughs> Michael, um, I'm gonna just turn to you. And I think that what I, what I think, and I'll, if Pastor Manisha is here, I'll, I'll, if maybe if you could just rephrase it a little bit so I understand it a little bit better. Oh, good morning. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, um, I was struck by um, John's, John lifting up the idea of imagination and sort of being a necessary tool for reconciliation um, following Michael's vision. And, um, and knowing my sister Shirley for now a beautiful five and a half years and knowing her questions, which are deep and, um, and true and real, um, in, in, in asking why, why does this pain persist in this world? Why does the violence persist? Why do we continue to struggle um, and there not be any progress made? And, and then what is the role that God's playing? I think ultimately that's the question I hear perennially from my sister Shirley. And I'm just struck by, um, I mean, one one could maybe accuse Shirley of being stuck in the mud, but maybe perhaps it's her imagination and, and just refusing to see this as actually, you know, seeing the distortion for what it is and saying, this is not right. Um, the, the thing that I would change about where my sister Shirley goes is, um, and, and she does this faithfully, she she continues to hold God accountable, which I adore about her. Um, I, I think I think the more of us who hold God accountable, um, you know, it proves our faithfulness to me. But I'm wondering if um, if demanding that God rid this world of the distortion and violence is actually part of our imagination of reconciliation, um, believing and, and seeing and envisioning a world where this is not the case, where that, that beautiful picture of the Buddhist monks um, in, in this joyful, playful, mystic reconciliation of reunion is exactly what God intends and God will not rest until that happens and that God, God's going through acts of contrition and confession and, and so on and so forth. So that, that's what was in my head. Sorry, that was a long answer. And I just no, I, tried I, to make it easier. No, it's, it's, it's a beautiful answer. I'll let it, I'll let Michael and then John maybe respond and then I might have something to say. Yeah, I think that's really deep, Anisha. Um, 
I think the we have to be careful because some kinds of suffering I'm not sure we can get rid of, like the suffering of birth. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe we can get going with test tubes or artificial intelligence, but I'm, I'm not sure that kind of suffering goes away. And it goes back to what I was trying to say about Simon Weil, the Christian mystic. There are different kinds of suffering. Um, and there's a, a wonderful philosopher, Christian philosopher, um, Albert Borgman, who teaches us that there are some burdens we should not be free from. Um, and the technological age is, is freeing us from burdens we should not be free from, such as exercise. Um, and this technological age is, is teaching us not to be active anymore. And we're becoming almost just these cerebral uh, minds sitting in front of monitors and we're, we're becoming disembodied. And so new diseases are starting to form, heart disease, diabetes, those are all new diseases because of this disembodied way that we're living. So there's some kinds of suffering I don't think um, we can be free from, but the imagination part, I think that's God in us. Um, those questions um, that Shirley was asking, I think that's the Holy Spirit uh, engaging with with Shirley, increasing our imagination to see more than what we just see, to have eyes to see the different realities that God has for us, um, I think has to be trained. Um, I think it, it, it oftentimes requires suffering. Uh, it requires moving out of our ways that like St. Paul used to have before he was converted um, and had to become blinded to actually see the truth. So yeah, um, my response is uh, multifaceted, but I think there's some suffering, some kinds of suffering that we will have to maintain, at least on this side um, of heaven. Father Michael, um, just to uh, say that, yeah, I suffered a suffering that won't go away and I just don't know how to make it go away, uh, how to make it easy on me. And that's the loss of a child. And after so many years, you know, it's still there and it, it's not going away. Yeah, that sounds to me, Shirley, like what I was saying about affliction. Um, and affliction is something only God can help us with. So blessings on you as you continue to go through um, those memories. John, what do you think? Well, I mean, it's, you know, that that personal thing that Shirley's just shared, there's a, a, a deep bereavement there. Um, and there's, there's bereavement in the world, kind of sewn into the world as it is, Shirley. Um, and we might wish that it were otherwise, um, but there, that is a bereavement which, um, which God, knows i i mean just to be personal for a second um uh having been through the bereavement of my first wife i think i'm really interested that 20 years on that continues to process uh, we're you know we're in covid at the minute so what you do in covid is you you sort your your i think you call them closets i call them cupboards we sort our cupboards out and of course i keep coming across all these kind of memory 
um, like little memory kind of vehicles of memory. And so quite aware of still traveling that journey. Um, but I think there's something in that if I, if just to leap forward a little bit because of time, if you'll forgive me, uh, in the participation. Participation is a word that's come up quite a bit in the last couple of weeks. And I want to just flip that, you know, that image about the guy that's about to drown because the water is rising and he prays for God to save him. And God sends a life raft and a helicopter and a boat or something. And he refuses all offers of help because he says, no, I don't want you. I don't want that. Thank you very much, because God is going to save me. And there's a sense of us participating in what God is bringing about. And I think maybe it occurs to me that that is true, both in blessing as well as in suffering. Now, there's something uh, quite mysterious in that. But um, but just as we are not excluded from sharing in the blessings that God brings uh, to others, so we are not excluded from sharing in the sufferings, which somehow in the grace of God in the wider in the wider world, I think, are part of bringing a new creation to birth. And I know that's kind of a, no, just a, a kind of little thing to say. Can I, can I just say something about imagination for a, for sure. a minute? Um, I, I so believe that this is the work of the Holy Spirit and the, the, the responsibility of the prophets and the mystics to help us see the world in a different way is so incredibly important. And if you do have the chance, I really want to commend to you the book which I spoke of, uh, The Moral Imagination by John Paul Lederach. Um, uh, he says this, he says, I define the moral imagination as the capacity to imagine something rooted in the challenges of the real world, yet capable of giving birth to that which does not yet exist. And, and just to directly link it to what so much of what Michael's been saying, the question the book poses is simple and endlessly complex. How do we transcend the cycles of violence that bewitch our human community while still living in them? And then he goes on to unpack that about how God can lead us into imagination, which sometimes we can't even see clearly what it is that we're trying to, to move towards. Um, so I think I just want to say that. And, and thank you to Michael. I still am not totally convinced by the completely non-violent route but i thank god for people that keep saying to me john you should be because i know that somewhere there's a kind of mystery there uh, for which i reach and i will continue to do so thank you thank so you. much i wanted to uh my own uh thought on this as i was thinking of course of romans uh chapter 8 mm. um 26 likewise the spirit intercedes for us with in our weakness or we do not know how to pray as we ought but that very spirit intercedes with sighs too deep for words and what what i think is really key here that we tend to over and, and what if if as michael's suggesting that god is the source of all empathy and if that that spirit as you were saying john and michael was intimating is the the, the way in which that empathy is brought to bear today, now that Christ has completed his ministry uh, and now intercedes for us, then intercession is a kind of vulnerable and dangerous place where God enters in and we and, and sees us where we are. And 
And it, when I used to think of interceding, I would think of it going one way, you know, the spirit would be helping my prayers reach God. But maybe, maybe intercession begins and the spirit is working from both sides of the equation. Maybe Amen. the spirit is actually in us when we're complaining to God, when we're holding God accountable, when we're, when we're, when we're protesting and, and grieving with, and refusing to stop grief, a child we've lost. We're doing some kind of holy work. And, and maybe that's because we expect whatever imagination God is going to give us uh, to bring this and reconcile all of this is going to be greater than we can imagine now. And I just happened to be reading St. John of the Cross, which is the, a saint uh, who has really suffered. And there's these two stanzas of his spiritual canticle that we'll finish with. And then we'll go into our, our, um, we'll go into our, our final um, litany. Um, why, since you wounded this heart, don't you heal it? And why, since you stole it from me, do you leave it so and fail to carry off what you have stolen? In other words, why, dear God, after wounding this heart, are you not carrying it away? But you've left me with this wounded heart that desires you. And then the second one, extinguish these miseries since no one else can stamp them out. And may my eyes behold you because you are their light and I would open them to you alone. Uh, may, uh, may all of us um, in this next week as we move through uh, Lent and we continue to think about reconciliation, um, have our, our own imaginations peaked. Um, I just saw that Katie wrote a beautiful question. I uh, I'm so sorry, um, uh, but there is a mention of imagination there, so I appreciate that. Um, so uh, we will um, we will we will take it there. I'm going to go in, and Father Chris had a little bit of trouble with his computer, so I'm going to put up the um, he I, he was here's I'm going to do the 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 litany of reconciliation. I'm going to place that up right now. And, uh, and then I'm going to ask, uh, Michael, you've done this before. So have you, John, so will you both lead us? So Michael, will you be the efficient and John, you'll be the people and, uh, everybody else, you can all, um, answer on your own. If you keep yourself, um, if you keep yourself, uh, uh, muted. So go ahead, Michael. O oh God, make speed to save us. O oh Lord, make haste to help us. Glory, Glory to, to the, the Father, Father and, to, and the Son, to the Son, and, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as it was, as it as it was, was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, is now and, will, and be will be forever. forever. Amen. 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 Psalm 103. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy, slow to anger and of great kindness. He will not always accuse us, neither will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wicked, wickedness. 
as a father has compassion on his children, so is the Lord merciful towards those who fear him. For he knows of what we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. Glory to the Father, Father and to the and Son, to the Son and, and to the Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. As it was, as it was in, the in the beginning, is now, is now and will, and will be forever. forever. Amen. Amen. If anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, sure of reconciliation through the death of his son. We confess our sins to God and seek forgiveness for our part in the shortcomings of this world. The hatred which divides nation from nation, race from race, class from class. Father, forgive. The covetous desires of people and nations to possess what is not their own. Father, forgive. The greed which exploits the work of human hands and lays waste the earth. Father, forgive our envy of the welfare and happiness of others. Father, forgive. Our indifference to the plight of the imprisoned, the homeless, the refugee. Father, forgive. The lust which dishonors the bodies of men, women, and children. Father, forgive. The pride which leads us to trust in ourselves and not in God. Father, forgive. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. God of unbounded grace, you declare the power of your reconciling love in the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Teach us who live only in your forgiveness to forgive one another as we have been forgiven. Heal our divisions and cast out our fears through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Go in peace, mend what is broken, unite what is divided, live the gospel. In, in the name, name of Christ. Of Christ. Amen. Amen.
Thank you so much, everybody, for being here. John, thank you so much for coming back. You can come back next week, too. And uh, Michael, uh, that was truly beautiful and wonderful. Uh, just a wonderful bringing together of things. We're so blessed to have you all. And I want to thank each and everybody who was able to be here. Thank you for your wonderful, wonderful uh, questions. I'm so sorry, uh, Katie Allen, I didn't get to your question, but I'm sure I'm going to take a look at it again and make sure uh, we, we we continue to, to put that in. I feel awful because I got on a tear, but I think it's a, you are right that, you know, one of the things that you're getting at um, is that, you know, there is uh, suffering is in many, many places. Uh, where people ask these deep questions and uh, and and it's nice to know that the um, in Japan commemorating that great calamity that people use their imagination to think their way around it again and to see it again from a new perspective. Um, God bless you all. See you on Sunday. So grateful for each of you. What a blessing this has been. Alrighty, have a great day. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.